Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome Johnny Vedmore, whose work I'm sure you read about Klaus Schwab and his family values. And I have many questions and uh, they're both, well, analytical and philosophical. So welcome, Johnny. Uh, wonderful. I'm so happy to be here and thank you for having me on and thank you for being so lovely. I love it. <laughs> have a good conversation. So what got you into this mess? Well, oh my God, what generally? I mean, how did I get to writing or how did I get to Klaus Schwab? Well, I guess I, that was a less politically correct way of asking you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I tell you, um, my my life was a bit strange, I suppose. I was brought up in um, South Wales, uh, which is, of course, attached to the side of England and was annexed by England 500 years ago. And uh, we, we have a long history of revolution and rebellion and etc. So I was brought up uh, uh, the, the son of a steel worker who worked in um, making wires for big bridges, really proper, you know, dunking it in molten lead and whatever. I don't know what quite what he did, but it was pretty hot and sweaty, I think. Uh, and and my mum worked in a hospital washing test tubes. I had two older sisters. Life was really um, all right. When I was young, it was a bit up and down and I didn't get much of an education. I had by the time I was 12, 13, I had like um, symptoms of a really bad thyroid disease. So I had loads of like issues with school um, and I was constantly buzzing all of the time. I was a danger to society uh, and I was undiagnosed till I was 27. So I was a danger to society until I was about 27, to be perfectly honest. Oh, you still um, are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But now I'm a much more focused danger to society. I have my, I have my, uh, I have my eye on the big boys rather than just going all around in a circle, which is <laughs> how I spent my, um, how I spent through my school years. I mean, I, I was, I, I didn't gain any qualifications in school that were of note. My highest qualification was a C in um, English literature. That was the, the highest, uh, like GCSE. Um, I could, I, I went into college failed everything, um, tried to go back another time, failed everything, uh, mainly because I was buzzing all of the time. I went into hotels instead and ended up working, first of all, thrown into five-star hotels. Um, I, I got a job when I was 19. Uh, I dropped out of college on the last year. I had, to be perfectly honest, the teachers were just like my second mothers. Uh, they, they looked after me while my whole family life was like breaking down around my parents were having a divorce there was arguments fighting all sorts of things going on and I was having to like look after my mum and my mum was really depressed at the time and uh, we had loads of just issues all around so I, I I just couldn't do it and I used to go to school and the teachers uh, I had one especially Mrs Roderick who used to um, uh, Mrs Matthew sorry who used to really like look after me and act like my mother uh, a lot of the time listen to all my problems I never gained anything in school you know I never managed to to, to finalize anything and I went off instead thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to just going to work in hotels as a night porter. And, and then I had loads of really weird experiences. I was in like the millennium. There was loads of weird experiences with really rich and famous people. Cause it was a, the first five-star hotel to open up in Cardiff. And I looked like I was 13, 14 years old and they had us dressed up like Captain Scarlet. So um, we were just running around the place, trying to hunt tips down off everybody. And, and it, it was a uh, Wembley stadium had closed. 
So all the sporting events, and that's a major stadium in England. So all the sporting events came to the Millennium Stadium, which had just opened up on the doorstep of the hotel, really. Um, and just opposite the Cardiff Castle, which is beautiful. And suddenly Cardiff became a boom town, had loads of experience and loads of wild, really crazy things happened. And it really opened my eyes to things. And that was in from my early 20s. And then, you know, had things like September the 11th happen, which that rocked my world. I mean, that that was just like, I, I remember being in bed uh, with my girlfriend in the afternoon, <laughs> like lazing around like you do when you're 20, 21 and you're off a day and, and turning on the TV and seeing, bam, you know, the second plane go into the, the second tower, um, uh, it, it, you know, um, and then the aftermath was really just, I mean, it was my it's sort of journey towards uh, opening my eyes to the problems around when uh, in Britain, when I reached the age I could vote, uh, I was I I was uh, missed out the election by one year. Tony Blair got elected in 1997, and I got my vote in 1998. So I I hadn't had that opportunity to understand politics properly. Um, we weren't taught it in school at that point. We weren't taught anything useful in school. They'd actually dumbed down under the Thatcher years. They had dumbed down the education in Britain so much so they had taken out things like you mentioned. You know, having a philosophical conversation, um, uh, talking about other things, looking at past masters, looking at the classics, um, understanding. Uh, philosophers, philosophers of the past, people who can really, like Marcus Aurelius or Socrates, who could really like give you a base understanding of something really easy, all taken out of the curriculum under the Margaret Thatcher's government and then John Major. And by the time I, I saw what was happening in the world and really took note, um, I, I was working in a hotel course, so I got free newspapers every day. Um, part of the night porter's thing is that you get the newspapers in, you clip them all out, you write the, the room numbers on the top, you need the newspapers, you go up and deliver all the newspapers, and then uh, the, the people go and read them and they leave them, they, they, they throw them away. And I used to just take all of the newspapers home that I could and like kind of like start to collate what was going on because this was like, it, I didn't have a computer you couldn't afford a computer. It was dial-up internet anyway. Um, there was no way to really communicate. You had to watch program TV or buy VHSs um, to understand the information, you know? Um, it was a different era. It really was a different era. It's really weird now looking back and seeing it. It was only 20 years ago and you just didn't have all of this ability to gain that information. So I suddenly started being obsessed with this, what was going on, Afghanistan, war, all of this information and I wanted to be able to, to understand it. So I started clipping up bits of newspapers keeping them in uh boxes and kind of like trying to make a, a, an idea of what was going on with around iraq and afghanistan and everything and um, also at the same time we were growing weed or trying to grow weed in the house i was living in and um and one day we got raided and they didn't take any of the growing equipment they didn't take any of the stuff they just took the boxes that were full of newspaper clippings about 9-11. Oh, wow. And it completely, yeah, it was like that was one of the times where no one, no one could work out what was going on. And then things like, you know, Loose Change came out. Uh, I, but within a couple of years, the internet had hit into broadband speed, slow broadband speed, but suddenly you could download movies. You could download things. And, and I started looking around, discovering different people who were saying different things, but still it wasn't, you know, you get brought up in this world where you're given this idea of what, how everything works 
through programmed information and very much so in the past everything was programmed so it's like you know you have four channels on british tv and you're going to flick across to each of them i mean when i was 10 11 we got sky which was really amazing but all it just did you gave you was a load of naughty german channels in the nighttime and a load of movie channels and it's still the same sort of program and you're just flicking through looking for something and you know you watch documentaries think time taking information but you're only being given information that you're allowed to see really um and the birth of the internet gave this whole rise to well we can we can start to look for information and i was a real hunter for that sort of stuff i wanted to go and 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 discover more and see more and and um and eventually it led to to this uh, i mean it i think it led to I, I went i i was a musician for all of this time as well i i wanted to uh get my music out into the world and when i was about um 28 20 well when i was 27 i had my thyroid disease caught up with me and i was almost dead i was like eight stone so i had to have a big operation where i had to have radioactive treatment and then a big operation and stuff and uh it left me like out of it for a while so i had to try and get all my music down and i pushed my whole um, emphasis into musical career and of course you try and do it like you do in the past but it doesn't work like that anymore because the whole world was different everything was digital and all of the people who were on the music scene all of my friends I mean I grew up with musicians all around me all of my friends were flog what we call flogging a dead horse you know they were just they were just pushing to uh, become a musician like in the past like in the 60s and the 70s where you could go out and sell your CDs and things like that and no one was Okay, CDs were piling up in people's houses in boxes, you know, on the side. There's no, there's, the world was changing and no one could really see it. And I could really, really feel it. Um, so I started to try and get as much music out as possible and discovered that there was loads of barriers for people to get stuff mm -hmm. out. And it would never get listened to anyway. But basically, you have to have a marketing team behind you, um, advertising, pushing. You have to be able to get on the radio station. Radio stations won't even bother listening to how many submissions do they get anyway? They get masses and masses. But you know, you you then think, okay, well, we'll go out onto the live scene and we'll we'll really push at it. So we did that, uh, went out to the live scene, and the live scene was dead because they put out loads of laws that meant and built apartments in city centers. So no one could make music anymore and you're not allowed to have things going on after a certain time and there were no clubs like there were in the past the whole infrastructure of what we wanted to create and what we had been given as ideas and templates for our creative lives in the past were all being destroyed systematically one by one till it got to the point where i was literally i was suicidal i was just like i don't want to be here anymore there's nothing i can do i you know everything around me is going bad all of the time I'm all of my friends were in chaos, you know? I, I watch people who are putting their whole life into music, their whole life, and they're still doing the past. They're still in the past, and the future is, is kind of growing around them, and the past is purposely being destroyed at the same time. And that was one of my main issues with the problem, is that, is that you know, we, we can progress and we can go forward, but you don't have to kill the, the the past to progress. And I seen that build up more and more over time. And that was really the technocracy. That's just, that's what they do. They come in, they introduce their technology, and you have to have it whether you want it or not. 
You don't get a choice. You don't get to think about what you want to do. And you don't get to decide whether you go to a club to watch people live or you go to eventually watch a hologram on a stage and you have to pay 30, 30, 100 pound, 200 pound to watch a hologram of someone performing in their studio being projected because that's what we're, we're entering towards. That's what we're, we're going towards. And that's not the world I, you know, the world I was in love with was very old. It was... Um, drug taking music drink i i didn't drink at that time because I, I mean i i was a good boy but also the thyroid disease uh, and i had to take loads of medication and stuff so i couldn't drink um but all of the drugs and the high life and the the, the playing music like hours rah, 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 sweating all of that was dying all of that was dying and it's like it's like everything that's human was being taken out of the world. And I felt really sad. So I, I, I went up to the Welsh um, country the hills. I went up to the Garth Mountain and I picked a load of magic mushrooms. Um, loads, loads and loads and loads and loads. So many that I, I had boxes and boxes of them around. And I decided I'm going to take three months out and I'm going to take a journey inside my mind because if I want to die, uh, if I feel so low that there's nothing around me that I can um, enjoy, that I can uh, have fun with or et cetera, then I, I may as well just go out with like a bit of a bang. That means you've got to look at yourself. You've got to look at your life. You've got to criticize yourself. Um, and that really was what my whole mushroom experience helped me do uh, in a sense is criticize myself is to look at myself and see all of the bits I kept with me from the past. You know, I, I grew up in abusive environments at time. There was loads of love in my family and there was a hell of a lot of abuse too. You know, I'm not talking physical, like I, I, my father was a, a, a strong, hard man and he, he used his force and his anger to control us. That's how he did. Um, that causes you uh, problems all through life. Also, when I was very young, when I was like 9, 10, 11, um, I, I was groomed by a paedophile uh, for two years um, and I had loads of issues from that. I mean, even now I can't really, you know, talk about that out loud properly without welling up a bit. And I used to, I used to fear talking about that. So I used that period to go through a lot of my life to understand all of the the bad things and why I what I what I want to how I can do something better how I can how I can take all of those bad experiences experiences that are both put upon me and experiences that I walked the path of and are my fault as well you know and take responsibility for them and understand how the world looks it really because all of those problems you have the things you don't sort out in your life give you an altered a, a different a different uh, altered morphing horrible perspective of how the world actually works you know I I have, it has only been over the past, say, two, three years um, that I've been able to say, well, I look around and see that every individual around is scared. They're really afraid. They're walking the streets afraid. I used to feel like they were a homogenous group. They were all 
um, basically the same people and they all hated me in some way or they all this, that, the, uh, you know, and you're given that, you're given that over time, you're given that, you're given this, this really false uh, idea of how people think and how people act. And uh, once you realize how the world really looks and what's really going on in the world, and once you start researching how people have acted in the past and all these people in power and what they do, you realize that it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. These are all, we're all a bunch of scared. We're basically monkeys. We're all really scared. We're all acting like we know everything. And we all believe that this time is different. This has been through the history as well, that this time is different. We won't make the same mistakes as the past. We can walk exactly the same path, do exactly the same thing, put a gun to someone's head, shoot them dead. Yes, so we're not going to do the same thing as the past. You know, we can create wars over here and we can do all of this we can force politically um economic sanctions everything to crush countries to crush people to kill children and babies but we're not doing the same thing as the past because we're nice now and we know better now don't we because we've had all of that experience from the past that's what you start to see you start to see this um contradictions within uh humanity and how we treat each other and how we perceive each other and how that is often that the other people have already worked this out Lots of other people, the people in power, a lot of them, the real power, the real power, they've they've already worked it out. They know how we work psychologically. They know how um, to control us, how to cajole us, how to make us do things um, by putting on a bit of pressure here or putting a bit of pressure there and then giving us an idea over here or giving us an outlet over here. And we fall for it. We walk it. We we just think, oh, this this must be right, and this must be right because clever people are doing it. We're still that's the same thing that happened in the 30s. And I I know people often go back um, to Hitler's Germany, and there's a reason for it. And one thing that I I, I think I may have written in Schwab Family Values, which is really in, in, important to understand, is that in like um, 1931, 1932, if you were entering in as a nurse to the German healthcare system to go and help people, the idea of murdering people or putting people down would not have probably been on your radar at all. You would have been a happy-go-lucky person who wanted to make a difference in the world and wanted to do something nice. Within three years, you're injecting children who have got some sort of slight retardation, as they would call it, and that's it. You would euthanize them. You would start euthanizing people who someone else deemed as ill. Someone else deemed as ill. And those people are so clever and they know everything, so we should listen to them without, you know, oh, wait a minute, that's what we've been doing for the past two years as well. You know, th th this is uh, something that my experience, like c coming through that home, and I, I only spent, say, I, I think it was probably about three to four months completely and utterly exploring the universe on psychedelics um, before I was like, I got to do something about this. I've got to start writing. I've got to start putting things down. I've got to start researching um, because I'd already been doing that unconsciously since probably about September the 11th 
Um, and I had, I, I mean, I was already well abreast of the Epstein case uh, years and years uh, before most people. And I didn't even realize, I thought everybody knew. I thought everybody knew about all of these different things. You know, you 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 follow these lines, you follow these these weird little uh, tangents, you find this information, you think, oh, someone must have written it down somewhere. And once you actually read other people's uh, work and you look around, you realize, oh, God, people don't know this? Wait, well, maybe I should tell people this. And and that's, that's really what I started to do. It started with just uh, Laura Koonsberg on the BBC being so damn annoying and so damn biased and so against Jeremy Corbyn and me being like, I'm still in the political paradigm in my head, yet I'm fighting against it also at the same time. I'm going to just follow this and say, Laura Koonsberg's bad, so let's go and check her out. And I went and I looked into her and I discovered uh, her father was uh, a bit of a, a, a bad guy, you could say set up sweatshops in south america not so far away from where i am and then while all of the other the country got reformed and the rights got reformed he managed to get a special dispensation so he didn't have to apply any of the reforms to his own factory uh his father was eckert von kunzberg he went to school uh with prince philip and others in uh um uber schwabia where Schwab is from, uh, in one of the most powerful schools um, that is in the whole world, where some of the most powerful people have gone, uh, some real, uh, that's, a, that's a story to be had if anybody wants it. Um, but, the, the, you know, there's this whole world there that I started to unravel and go, oh, cool. okay, I'll write it down, do it as professionally as I can, I'll put it up on something. And I did that and a load of people read it. And I, you know, when you start doing this, you're like, oh, you, you leave it like six months, seven months, eight months. You're like, look, I'm getting the glory for this one article that I've done, this one piece of work. And I could never do anything like that again. And then, and then you know, a couple other like investigative piece later, I, I came across um, an amazing story just before the election in the UK with Theresa May against Jeremy Corbyn. I wanted to try and find something that was interesting that no one else was doing. Um, and so I investigated her father. I'm good at family trees. I like going back into history. And I discovered her father worked with a very famous serial killer called John Bodkin Adams, who killed over 130 people um, just after the NHS was set up. And it was all covered up. He got off with every single murder every single one of them. Um, and her father, uh, Theresa May's father, Hubert Brazier, um, literally was the chaplain in Eastbourne Hospital at the time where he was committing all of these crimes. And it got obvious. It got obvious. He had them. He had all of these people sign him into their will. And he inherited all their money after giving them an injection and then dying, including young people, including a very young actress who was very famous at the time. And at the same time, years later, uh, it, this was also in the Diocese of um, East Sussex, and East Sussex would come up in the child sexual abuse uh, uh, inquiries um, that were happening at the time and had been uh, covered up, you could say, by Theresa May while she was Home Secretary. And it's very suspicious that her father was in that diocese and knew all of the people who were um, pedophiles in that area who were uh, abusing kids on a mass scale, including friend of Prince Charles, uh, Canon Peter Ball, who's dead now um, and, and convicted. So, I mean, I'm not saying anything there that's out of, uh, that, that's not out in the uh, open. And you, what, it, what I discovered was that the <laughs> loads of people were really interested in the truth. It was a quarter of a million people 
uh, read that article and it, I, I'm, I had no ability to like push it out. I had, I didn't have, I was on a vocal media, which is just a free platform to like publish out articles. And they basically have a quick check of it. They don't spell check it or anything like that. They just stick it up there. And I had spent like two, uh, uh, probably a week um, of really heavy research sitting in my underpants, <laughs> looking, ah, madness, trying to, trying to research as fast as I can so I could have it out before the election. And I discovered people were really interested in the truth and that what I thought before was a lie. It was just, you have to um, give people the truth in, in, in the best way that is easiest to digest and that they can understand. And the best way to do that is not just to concentrate on the one issue and the one issue a lot of the time for like, um, like if people look at Schwab, they always get caught up in what they care about. You know, I, I, I did as well. You know, I, I'm like, oh, I don't want this uh, fourth industrial revolution to stick chips in my brain, you know, something like that. I, I'm just like, I can focus on that. I'll focus on that. I'll focus on that. But for me, I'd had all of this experience by then. I'd done um, uh, uh, articles about um, Bill Gates and his family history. I'd gone back 700 years. Uh, one of uh, Bono's cousin, uh, Barbara Houston, who died uh, last year, um, she was a mad uh, pedophile enabler. She she made the uh, um, statement on Channel Four that you know people like Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris should have been allowed to basically rape thirteen year olds uh, because they're thirteen, so they should know better. Uh, it was just, I mean, in the most bizarre interview you've ever seen. And if you go back in history, it's amazing. Every single member of her family have always been done the opposite to what society is saying at the time. It's like so wonderful because you're uh, the same with uh, Bill Gates ancestors. You know, you, you go back, you think, Oh, what are they going to be? Lots of people are saying, Oh, we can't get past, you know, um, his, his, his uh, great, great grandfather. And, and you eventually you find it. And what you discover is that his ancestors were um, some of the pallbearers uh, who were riding along the coffin of King Henry VIII when he died and would then take King Henry, the eighth son who would only live for another like six to nine years i can't remember i think it's nine years uh would take him and would try and get him to install someone else lady jane gray onto the throne of england and they would have their head chopped off on the first day when bloody queen mary took over these people these this is history repeats itself you know we know this we say this we 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 talk about this we we understand this yet as soon as we are in a new era we're a new start history never repeats itself now and that's that contradiction is obviously was glaring to me and and it really annoyed me so i eventually um i i, I had my work mixed up because i there was um i come across a lady i i did a, a bit of an epstein article i looked uh for someone who no one else was looking for and i looked for all of like manifest and i kind of like uh came up with um uh, kind of um, put it into a table to see if there was any anomalies. And I found a lady called Nicole Youngerman, who's now Countess Brachetti Peretti and married to the head of API Oil, um, Ferdinando Brachetti Peretti, uh, part of the Brachetti Peretti family. The Peretti family had gone back a long way. Elsa Peretti, uh, his uh, sister, um, is the woman who invented Tiffany lampshades and was big on the Studio 54 scene, left her family behind 
behind completely to go to America and all of this, but you're always a bit like, oh, man, the, her, her, um, uh, his mother was the first female general to serve in Italy. And that was really rare. I mean, Italy is not known for being like uh, <laughs> an equal rights place. You know, women are seen as women and men are seen as men. It's a very misogynistic place. We know it. I mean, it's the culture is is there. We we it's it's not a it's not a surprise. Um, but but still, it, it, these these sort of like he, she had wrote um, this. Nicole Youngerman had ridden on the uh, Lolita Express alone with Jeffrey Epstein on one occasion, and that was a really rare thing. Normally, it was a member of his usual entourage or members of his usual entourage were with him. Never was he really alone with someone who wasn't in his entourage, one in his main unit. And it turns out she was very interesting. She was um, uh, invested with both Jeffrey Epstein, Peter Thiel. Um, um, oh, and echoed Barack, of course, in Carbine 911, which was um, a unit 8,200, so Israeli sort of based um, uh, ex-IDF people who were trying to basically take over all of the surveillance systems, official surveillance systems in certain places like New York City and stuff. So they would be in charge of all of the... You'd have to call the police through Carbine 911 in the future. So that that's convenient, isn't it? You're, oh, I need a policeman. Okay, phone IDF, uh, ex-IDF guys, <laughs> unit eight thousand two hundred, and they'll tell you if you can have a policeman. That I mean, it, it is it is beyond belief some of the stuff they were doing, and she is amazingly influential. Um, so that put me on in in uh, on a collision course with Whitney Webb because <laughs> I mean she did so much about um, uh, unit eight thousand two hundred stuff um uh, spy stuff uh the epstein case she was right on it at the time so uh, i ended up talking with her and we ended up working together on a couple of pieces and she she get, was gracious enough to give me a place on her site um <laughs> that that relationship has has increased in time and then we have a kid together so that there's that you might you might hear him cry in the background <laughs> maybe um uh and and then one day round uh the coffee table in our old house in um chile that we were we were staying in um she said to me why haven't you looked into schwab's family history or why haven't you and wasn't it the most obvious thing someone has ever said to me it was like oh man i'm so good at doing family history and i love it so much i i mean she said i'll give you four weeks um to dig away and see if you can find something really, really good in there. Um, and it took me four to five weeks to, to really confirm who Schwab's father was. Um, and then once you know, and once you have the information, the little bits of detail, then my job is very easy for me now. I've had a lot of experience in it, and my job is searching every place where no one else could possibly imagine looking for the information relentlessly until I find something uh, amazing. And it, and I really mean like that first four weeks um, was me, uh, first four or five weeks of trying to find out Schwab's family history was me looking through Swiss archives uh, 
uh, all sorts of articles about uh, from the early 1900s and working my way through collecting every person who was called Schwab. And people have to understand he comes from a region called Uberschwabia, which is off Schwab. There's a, there's a few of them and there's a few big ones as well. You know, there's a few where you're like, oh, I hope it's this guy. Oh, I hope it's this guy. And um, and and what's really useful now as well, when people say, oh, his he, his ancestor is this person. And look, they married a Rothschild up north. Right, right, well, right. Yeah, they, they, that, that rumor is very nice. But then if you follow the family line, they've got nothing to do with that family line. They're completely different people. And what a lot of people don't realize and don't know because they haven't really done their research on the the place at the time you have to know about the regions and how the regions worked at the time and um it, it's uh it was only about 1840 that Jews were allowed into um, Uberschwabia, Uber uh, Baden-Württemberg area, and the Ravensburg area. Before that, they were they were banned from going in there. They would be turned away, um, and there's lots of evidence of that. There was uh, blood libels, um, so lots of Jews were killed in the region um, through the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, and then they were banned so that that this just stopped happening because it was getting a little bit awkward you know no one no one likes to be killing a load of men women and children publicly all the time so they just said oh you jews aren't allowed around here so a lot of people who were jewish who came later changed their name to schwab as well because it's off schwab so people would assume you're of the region so they're no longer asked questions and after um jews were allowed back into the area it did get to the point where everybody was like all right then well let's just get on with things and you know everything's back to normal we're in a new era the kaisers are here don't worry everything's fine um but uh what what and what's very interesting is if you go back to uh, Schwab's great grandfather, and I get a feeling that he was Jewish or from Jewish ancestry, and a lot of the people who were Jewish at that time and took different names did so, leaving Judaism behind completely. So if he is, it's not like uh, he's meant to be. I can't recall uh, his full name at the moment, but um, it's not like it, it's within the article Schwab family values, but. Um, it's not like they, they're hiding in this, secretly a Jewish person hiding away. A lot of people around that time were like, oh, it's just too hard to be Jewish and practice uh, religion. And so there was only about 18 families um, by, say, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, late 1920s, 1930s. There was only about um, a, a handful, really, of families who were open about being Jewish still in Ravensburg and Baden-Württemberg in general. Um, so it was a, it, it, you know, when you, when you, when I do an article, I go right from the beginning. And that meant I had to do a lot of research to who Schwab's were and where they where their lines went. And eventually I found Schwab's father. And once I found Schwab's father, I found a load of other points of references that pointed it to it being Schwab's father. And then I found concrete evidence from court documents um, uh, from 1950, I think it's around 1951, where, uh, to 1956, somewhere around there, where basically uh, the family want to go and visit uh, Schwab's half-brother, um, uh, Schwab. Eugene Schwab, Eugen Schwab, which is amazing for, I mean, eugenic Schwab, uh, right. his, his, his father um, was uh, born about 1898 um, and would marry before 
he married Schwab's wife, um, uh, Schwab's mother, sorry, uh, Klaus Schwab's mother, right. if that's confusing. He would marry before, so he was married to a woman who was Jewish. They That marriage didn't last. She actually had about three husbands in her time, which was really rare for back then. So I think she was a bit of an independent woman as well. And she liked to, she liked to make sure that her men kept in line or they were out the door. I get a feeling she was that type of lady. Um, and I don't think the men lived up to it. And Eugene Schwab didn't. But they had a child together. And by 1936, Eugene, she, she was, they, 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 they had formed their own separate family units and Eugene Schwab was marrying his second wife, who would be Klaus Schwab's uh, mother. Um, and uh, in 1938, uh, Eugene Schwab's first wife would uh, leave Germany, uh, like many Jews would, um, for America. And she would uh, write down that she was Hebrew, uh, of Hebrew nationality when she arrived in america um so a lot of people say now oh schwab look is they shipped him off you know that his mother was shipped off because she was jewish and that we you know it's we we we, we're drawn towards the idea of drama but the actual story is much simpler it's it's just he got married again and this time he got married to a good german wife well, actually, I think she was from Swiss descent, but that's good enough because uh, the Germans and the North Swiss and the Swiss in general have worked together quite a lot throughout history, you discover. Um, and so so they had Klaus Schwab in 1938, just the year before uh, war broke out. And uh, Eugene Schwab had already been working in a Ravensburg factory for Escher Weiss, Escher Weiss, which was set up in Ravensburg in about 1860 um, by Walter Supinger. And v Walter Supinger was a very clever man. Uh, he would uh, take the company from being like making things like lace machines um, all the way up to uh, making big hydroelectric turbines um, for massive dam projects, for ships, for massive um uh boats military stuff as well by the 1900s um but early on the escher vice company is very interesting as well for the fact that its um uh center its headquarters is in switzerland and then it has that ravensburg branch so during world war ii it was still like that but during World War II, something very special happened to the Asher Weiss factory, which is they got, like many, special di international di di dispensation not to be bombed. Can you imagine that? They, the Allies were told, hey, listen, don't bomb Ravensburg because that's where we'll be sending all our charity stuff and all uh, the people who we don't want to be bombed. And at the same time, they were using that as cover so that they could make massive turbines to ship up to uh, Norway for their secret atomic bomb program. Um, <laughs> and so Klaus Schwab's father, Eugene Schwab, was the manager of the factory Asher Weiss factory in Ravensburg that was making turbines for the heavy water nuclear projects for the Nazis. And once I discovered that, well, oh my God, <laughs> Whitney was very happy. I was very happy because it was like, wow, okay. I didn't expect that. I thought it was just, I thought he was just going to make like turbines for dams for the rest of his life but turns out no uh turns out he's a bit of a, a big player and and, and the Asher Weiss factory in Ravensburg got um got given the a, a model Nazi company you can 
you can buy the books. I, I'm, I, 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 I do intend to source the book down, but I, I, I know that um, I think it was in 1938, just before the war, they were given the title of Model Nazi Company, which meant the basic. And then, you know, there was a, it was, um, I think, a seasonal thing, something like or oh, biannual affair that they would produce a book, the Nazis, and say these are the best Nazi companies, um, and Escher Weiss was just one of them. Um, but basically, Schwab's father was uh, a Nazi collaborator helping him with the atomic bomb program. Uh, and still now, I mean, for the fact I've got no education, I've got no n- nothing in the back, I still I still find it hilariously funny that I'm the one who has to find that <laughs> because I'm sure there's a load of journalists or supposed journalists out there who have got a lot of training who should have come across this a long time ago. Um, uh, there was also very interesting to follow uh, a little bit further was to discover that um, Klaus Schwab would then go work for Escher Weiss. And as a deputy uh, head of the company, when he left Harvard um, in 1967, and he would uh, get called up by uh, Peter Schmidtheiny, who was the son of Jacob Schmidtheiny, Colonel Jacob Schmidtheiny. He was a Swiss, uh, a Swiss, a big, big Swiss army guy who was in in charge of special operations and also was head of Escher Weiss at one point. Um, and then he passed it down to his son, and his son phones up uh, Schwab in 1967, Klaus Schwab, and says, hey, you know now you've been taught by Kissinger, you know all of these management, these futuristic management things. Uh, why don't you come and make our merger a success? And what they were doing was merging Escher Weiss, which obviously, I mean, it's good when, when a company's done bad things, it's probably good to get rid of the name. And they were merging it with uh, two other companies uh, and a few other small entities, but Brown Bavari, uh, I think was one of them, and the other one was Schulze AG. Uh, Schulze, um, Schulze. The, the what was going to happen was these three companies were going to merge, um, but some of the companies would just be, basically they would coordinate what they make uh, with each other so that they didn't make the same stuff because um, they were competing. And why compete when they could all just make money doing separate parts of big dam projects and di- big hydroelectric projects um, and other things? Because then Schwab comes to the company in 1967, helps with the merger to make Schulze AG, um, S-U-L-Z-E-R AG. uh, And and they would go on uh, by 1968 to start helping uh, the South Africans to gain illegal nuclear weapons. Yes, Schwab would literally walk with the same company, walk the same Klaus Schwab would walk Eugene Schwab's shoes nearly exactly. Now, what's interesting is after the war, um, Eugene Schwab also went on to work for like a trade, a Ravensburg trade committee. I mean, I think they tried to leave and run off to Brazil. They were scared that there was going to be more uh, in the 50s. I think they were still scared there was going to be more Nazi uh, like uh, retribution 
retaliation against them for mm-hmm. being Nazis. Um, so so he didn't think that that he would be able to stay around. But in actual fact, people like Von Papen and stuff were given were almost gained political office and were allowed to run for political office in the future. So it wasn't like they really cared that much about what happened. It was all, oh, it's another reset, you know. Oh, we've learned the lessons of the past. Now let's go on. Oh, we've killed a load of people, but let's not worry. I mean, I think you know this better than 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 most. I mean, seven million Russians, wasn't it? Um, were were murdered or more? Um, well, the official the number, as it was during the Soviet Union, was twenty million, Ooh. and then later on, that was the low number that people who were done. I mean, altogether, not just murdered, but you know, the war losses. But then they were saying even up to fifty, but nobody knows really. So it's, yeah, it's one yeah. of those things. So so it, it seemed, yeah. I mean, the whole, that whole era, um, their whole, the, eventually the Swiss would do an inquest or an inquiry, a public inquiry into um, Schultze AG helping um, South Africa with the illegal um, nuclear weapon bomb project. Of course, nothing would come up about Schwab in it. Schwab was really protected in a way that was really bizarre. Um, I mean, between uh, 1967, um, when he left Harvard um, onwards, Schwab was uh, had gained 13 different degrees, some of them honorary, over about a four or five year period, um, and was was being obviously boosted up, and that basically led on to the second piece that uh, followed it up recently which was uh, an investigation into his time at Harvard. Uh, it, my God, I, I, I spent about... It's a great article, um, yeah. I spent about a year um, trying to understand what I was, what the next article would be, what I was looking at and what, what was actually happening. And when I, I discovered, by the time I discovered, like the key piece of information that brought it all together, the fact that um, the Harvard... Uh, Schwab's time at Harvard isn't as simple as him going to Harvard. And it that came from, as well, going through a lot about what Klaus Schwab has said publicly about his time as Harvard and listening to how he words things. He words things very carefully, and from it, you can tell what he's trying to avoid. And I tried to explain this to a few people. Um, it's really... it's it's, it's it's pretty easy basically he he uh extrapolates he he br- says too much about things he shouldn't say things about he's really bad at that you know when he shouldn't mention something he'll say something else straight afterwards and then try and excuse it with a couple other sentences and keep you off pull you off track but he said the original thing and now all he's done is giving you loads more information so there was about five or six certain statements that he had made that i'd come across during my research that made me realize that there was something very special going on at harvard and that that investigation is still going and i tell you what it is because uh, I, I, I published the the part which shows that basically um he didn't attend a course. Schwab will say it says this himself. He didn't int- attend a specific course when he went to Harvard. Instead, he was allowed to sit in on Henry Kissinger's international seminar. Everybody else had to pay, um, and it was quite a pricey seminar to sit in on because, in a sense, it was very much like the World Economic Forum. It was very much like. Uh, a, 
at the summer school where this would take place was once Harvard students had all gone away and then in come the bureaucrats, the technocrats, the diplomats, the future uh, of uh, that Kissinger saw as being the future leaders. Oh, and it was very similar to the um, Young Global Leaders um, project uh, right. program that, that goes on. It was very, very similar to that. They were developing leaders and there would be about three or four leaders that I could find, including Pierre Trudeau um, uh, in Canada, of course, uh, father, just supposed father, Justin Trudeau, shall I say, <laughs> suspected father, Justin Trudeau. Um, it, he was He was one of, Kissinger's young global leaders in an, uh, to an extent, you know? Um, and so that was really interesting. But then I found out that the, um, found out it was actually advert. It was, it was, it, it was reported on, but people in the mainstream, of course, um, are paid to avoid reporting on such things. So I'm sure someone else has come across this at some point, but as as it was as it is as the situation is it was me who had to come across the fact that it was a cia funded course my god and of course you froze at that phrase of course it was a cia funded course it was uh i mean the the international seminar the summer school itself um was uh, a cia funded course it, uh, it, there was about six courses that were um, over the summer school that were funded by the CIA, um, and it was one of them. Um, and it got the most money. And Henry Kissinger to Harvard Crimson, and in another newspaper, I think the New York Times, said, no, 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 although it, was, it might be in Washington Post, and said, no, 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 I didn't know it was funded by the CIA, but I can promise you the information I'm finding now, he definitely did know it was funded by the CIA. He was well involved uh, with it. Um, so, so that, of course, this saga, this flowing river just kept going and going, and... Then it was about, okay, so what happened at that course and what I found happened and what, what Schwab himself says happened, he was introduced to two very important people at the course by Henry Kissinger. He would be noted, obviously, Henry Kissinger saw him as being someone very important um, and <laughs> would put him uh, in contact with Herman Kahn, who's described as the real Dr. Strangelove, because uh, by all accounts, most accounts, Sir Stanley, except for Herman Kahn's account, uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, based Dr. Strangelove on Herman Kahn. I think he based it um, upon like a mixture between Fritz Kramer, Henry Kissinger, Herman Kahn, and maybe someone else. You know, it was like a merger of characters in there. Um, but it seems almost comic. Um, and a, a guy, a John Kenneth Galbraith, who's one of the biggest and most powerful people who most people have never heard of, an American economist who was the man who taught JFK um, and would stand along JFK in a lot of his decisions. And JFK would ask him for advice nearly all of the time. Um, he also wrote the, the, the first draft of the uh, Johnson speech once JFK had been murdered. And all, both, all of these guys, Henry Kissinger, John Kenneth Galbraith, Herman Kahn, all members of the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, 
they all, all been uh, working upon um, Europe, but from a different perspective. Um, so Herman Kahn before had been working on understanding nuclear threat through using game theory at the Hudson Institute. Um, a really, really interesting man, possibly one of the most interesting men who have who's ever lived. Uh, he would in 1967, the same year uh, Schwab is being recruited by these guys and trained up by these guys would uh produce two documents um of real note um one being uh, the year 2000 and looked for looked at all of the technological um advancements that that can be expected uh, up until the millennium and he basically predicted everything we're doing now everything we've already done he i mean they did a job they did. I, I'm not sure if it's a good job. Um, back then, Herman Kahn was very, I would describe him as dystopic. He was over the top. Um, he would have been very enticing to listen to and very interesting to listen to. So I'm not surprised he was within these circles. John Kenneth Galbraith was a very different person. Um, Henry Kissinger had also worked on nuclear threat assessments. He had been writing a lot of papers for the Council on Foreign Relations on the threat of the Soviet and the uh, Western uh, nuclear threat against each other. And that was big papers, big articles. He had put himself in a position to be one of the main people, uh, main uh, brains to, to go to uh, when you want to understand the nuclear threat in uh, the paradigm as it was. So those two were always going to be working together anyway, so always going to be close. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith was very much different, very much the opposite to Kissinger in so many ways, yet by 1967 and 1968, he's combining with him so much so that they're, they're taking part in something called the Mandeville Lectures, where they're, they're talking about the same things at the same place and they're doing a tour together. So they're obviously joined in and... and Kissinger, um, Klaus Schwab would say himself that Kissinger would introduce John Kenneth Galbraith and Herman Kahn to him, um, and they would become his mentors. Basically, they would travel across to Europe to help with the forming of the World Economic Forum, would, uh, which was originally called the European Management Symposium, then the European Management Forum, and then would be called the World Economic Forum by early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, as, as they were trying to rechange for this new world that was happening after the fall of uh, Soviet Russia or the supposed fall of Soviet Russia. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Influence is a really hard thing to track and I don't think it ever goes away and it just, it just takes different faces. So I, I, you know, both sides are East and West. That's it. Um, they, they were all really in a prime position to uh, influence um, European uh, policies, especially surrounding nuclear uh, weapons, defense, uh, which was big on the agenda. Um, and uh, that that's what would happen. Herman Kahn and John Kenneth Galbraith would help uh, come across and convince people who were skeptical, uh, along with von Habsburg and others, um, to uh, set up the World Economic Forum and uh, make it a force for uh, entry, uh, putting policy into the mainstream environment and creating policy, European policy, that was aligned in a way that Herman Kahn's belief was, at the time, and he wrote it down, um, uh, that uh, Europe 
Britain and America should be joined together, uh, united really as one entity. And if possible, Europe would be good too. And then there's no fight against that. Once those blo- that block is one entity, then the East falls. Because at that time, it was small little China who we can manipulate however we want. And Russia, who would not be able, Soviet Union, who would not be able to fight against this combined Western, European, American, British uh, military, nuclear strength, you know, the, and really that's what we saw play out and um and yeah it's extremely interesting times to be a journalist (laughs) discovering this sort of stuff um completely epic sort of uh i'm doing some some really interesting work it's so fun um I'm i'm going through space and time and i'm (laughs) meeting or getting to know about some of the most interesting and sometimes evil people. But then there's really interesting things as well about it because it leads on to 1971, 1971, Von Habsburg and John Kenneth Galbraith for keynote speakers um, at the first World Economic Forum. Um, Klaus Schwab has made a, a, a really success of the first event. The second event does not go so well. And the third event, he's got to bring in a crowd. And so he goes and gets um, uh, Aurelio Pecce, who's part of uh, the Club of Rome, um, to do the limits of growth speech. And the limits of growth basically is a Malthusian uh, uh, propaganda um, about reduction of population and how people are the enemy. Um, you know, the public is the enemy. And we need to reduce population, reduce population. And that terrified Herman Kahn, who turned his back on all of that and would spend the rest of his time then on Earth arguing against that idea, um, which he saw as really pernicious and he was right to see it. And Herman Kahn's like way he acted would change a lot over that time as well. And he would um, then write a second follow-up piece, um, which looked into well into the future, well into the future at what the world's going to be like. Um, and he said, there's no need to worry about limits to growth, about there not being enough resources because we're going to go to space and we're going to do this and we're going to discover all new different technologies. So none of that matters. Um, but that's not what Klaus Schwab went with. Klaus Schwab, I think, stayed on the limits of growth path. Um, and we've seen we've seen what the World Economic Forum has become now. It, it's become a cedar for leaders within business and government. Um, by 1990s, you got the Young Global Leader um, Program. And that is just... I, I mean, that is so interesting when you look at it. Uh, Putin, the, the, the rumor that he was a young global leader, he was a Russian equivalent. It was um, uh, like a young patriot of Russia uh, version of it. I can't remember what they called it. Um, but basically, there was three ex-KGB agents who were chosen or political uh, people of high political influence by that point chosen to be um uh in this program um that that program i think ran a little bit on the side and wasn't really the same what were the other two 
I can't remember. I got them written down somewhere, so I can send them to you and you can please do because notes. you know that's my homeland. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and and yeah, the names are written down in there. There's some really fantastic articles that from about two thousand between 1990 and 2000 that really, really um show that there's something really dystopian in the selection of leader in Russia. And basically, I mean, you know at the end of the day it's like it's him that's that that's how putin was decided it was i look at this guy suddenly he comes on the scene and he's all like everybody's like oh who's this guy every loads of people know who he is loads of people know who he is and there's loads of fear because people realize how powerful he could be as well um i i you know i i think that they're both two sides of the same coin completely um like east and west can often be like that they they're playing off those dynamics. They're playing off it very well. Um, but yeah, the Young Global Leader Project, that went swimmingly, uh, really bad for the first time, because the first time it was like Global Leaders for Tomorrow, and loads of people asked questions that were really awkward, and they all they didn't have answers for them. And they said, okay, we're stopping this course now. And then the next year they were like, oh, now we're doing the Young Global Leaders, which was the same course, uh, but for people who they had you know, refined who they allowed into right. the program. Right. Um, and then from that point on, I mean, they've seeded some people into this, uh, into political power, and they are the big boys. And it was all started by a CIA-funded project in Harvard, uh, run by Henry Kissinger, and a guy who's one of the most uh, influential men in history that you've never heard about, um, William Yandel Elliott. Uh, William Yandel Elliott may actually be related to um, the Trudeaus. Uh, that is something I have to look into. And if anybody else wants to look into it, you can do, because i got loads of work to do. Um, but he is one of the biggest uh, hidden hands in history, six, advisor to six presidents. Seriously, when you look at him, he, he's like um, a, a monster character. You know, he's, he's a we really weird big face, but he's well known and his reach was unbelievable. Um, and it, it's really, that's it. Um, that's my journey through Klaus Schwab world, Schwabland, uh, Schwabia. <laughs> and it's been a, it's been a crazy one. It's been a crazy one. And it's, it is continuing. I'm, I'm going, my next step is, and what I'm currently, I'm, I've got loads of projects on the go. Um, but one of them is really looking in at, um, that, Harvard unit and what was going on and man there's some freaky stuff and really amazing connections connections that will lead you to some of the biggest names nowadays some of the biggest people who you're like oh my god the crossovers are amazing it these articles have been really interesting because it's like um it, it's there you realize how intermingling all of these big players are all of these powerful people how they're all on the same that side and you you should already know you should already know you can see they're playing games the drama that you see on your TV screens is put there to be drama on your TV screens. That's not what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on behind the scenes is um, professional, executive, managerial. It's very, very focused. And it, part of the focus is on you not seeing 
what they're actually doing. So nearly all of it's smoke and mirrors. And once you uh, dig away at it, you can see the creation of the smoke and mirrors. And the do- one of the documents I talked about um, just not so long ago, uh, Herman Kahn was working on in 1967. The other one alongside the year 2000 was an ancillary document for um, a future leadership. And that basically explains the Young Leaders Project, uh, uh, young seeding leaders, specially chosen people who will be educated outside other people. And universities will become places where just really the the uh, people who serve these other people go to. Um, and the education has to be given to those people in universities at a level that doesn't let them go past that boundary of doing too much, being able to do too much right. and being given the responsibility. So yeah, there you go. That's my oh, journey. Thank you. And your work is so important and so amazing. Like I, I really, really love it. And it's, you know, it's very eye opening. I'm, I'm sure to many people and well, we don't have a whole lot of time left. I of course have like as much to say. Uh, so, but I'll try to be brief and I'll probably fill in in the article, but so several things. I, I relate to so many things because my own journey into researching big tech came actually from being a musician because the musicians were essentially fucked first, well, along with photographers and filmmakers. Art, and art. I remember that time where like all of a sudden there's no money and uh, the, the, the scam with information wants to be free which is actually like a, a that's actually the, not not the quote there was an ending to the quote that completely reversed it but that whole scam with it was actually intended to well train ai by google and such right and that was the entire idea so that information wants to be free for the robot to get trained and for take to essentially grab the entire economy that was the trick but for years the creatives while well, the musicians and such they were the only ones who were really getting that end of the stick and i remember musicians crying and i was in musicians activism like that was my foray into the entire thing and everybody would like get a job like stop whining and among my friends who were in the same on the same mind then we had a joke that oh if they start doing to farmers and doctors what they're doing to musicians we're screwed i mean like we're done guess what's happening yeah. And yeah. like that's exactly what they're doing, and it's it's quite amazing. So when I was smiling ear to ear when you were talking about troubles with musicians, not because I was gloating, but because like oh man, like I so like that's exactly that. Listen, that's, art is that. the first thing that is going to get attacked in dystopia because art uh-huh. is truth. Art is allows you access to truth. Um, when 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 the the all of the media in the UK wouldn't say anything bad about the royal family, you you, you could have one song like uh, "God Save the Queen." Even though I'm not a big right, fan right. of the, the Sex Pistols, you could have something like that come out, and it pierces the bubble. And that's so dangerous for them. It's so dangerous for you to be able to speak truth in tune. That's exactly weird. and amazingly many of my peers who humanly i love dearly regardless of what they think and regardless of differences and i know that many of them are such brave people they went full covid and mm-hmm. the the world lost because the they was are amazing. the brave warriors i mean they're not they, they got i mean they got terrified of the disease to the extent that they stopped thinking and i believe that was a genius devil move because that's 
That, that's what they, they do. And that's, that's what the nuclear um, threat thing was doing in the um, 50s and 60s. I mean, the, the re- when, when um, Dr. Strangelove uh, got released in the cinema, that was kind of to defuse that fear of nuclear weapons, in a sense. It was one of the many different techniques to defuse it um, because they had built up this this fear. There's so much that people had gone basically crazy with fear mm-hmm. and they were doing crazy things and they were making crazy decisions and they were like, okay, now we got to wind it in and we got to stop it quickly because that's what they do. They make us scared and scared. And the flip on the COVID stuff, I, I knew people who were um, singing truth all of their life in bands who split up with their entire bands and turned completely um, masked up, uh, not doing any research, just, you know, same people now who wave the Ukrainian flag in the air without even knowing anything about history at all, anything. You know, I, I'm not saying that there's anything bad about Ukraine or anything positive about Ukraine, but if you know nothing about it and you know nothing about the situation, you just say, oh, I support that person because that's what it says on the media. Oh, oh my God. And that's what COVID was. I, su- I support this because otherwise I might, we all may die. And do you want to kill children? I bet you do want to kill children. Look at you. You want to kill children. And that's how quickly it flips. So that, that was so weird. I, and as with the COVID stuff, um, I, I was on, I, I, when you're an independent journalist, you hear about these things coming months before they're coming. Right. Um, and I was already sitting down and telling my friends a couple of months before, listen, something really big's going to happen and they're going to make you do all of these different things. And, and you can, you know, even a couple of weeks before the, the lockdown started, people just were, you know, completely, they did not realize what was happening. And I, I started, um, watching you know how many people are wearing masks or how many people are doing this and it just went from one day no one to the next day everybody because they've been told to and there's enough fear in the air that they will do anything they're told put it in my arm quickly and then you know you see the 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 droll posts that come out on social media over and over i got my first facts I got my second vax. Look at this. This is my picture of my vaccine certificate to prove I've been vaccinated. Aren't I better than you? And it really is. There's a comedian called Harry Enfield in the UK. And, um, he used to do a sketch. It was uh, this rich guy who'd be like, I'm considerably richer than you. And it's very much like I'm considerably more virtuous than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's how everybody is going. And it's so boring. It's so boring because you, you tap away at that. Those people are usually the most vacuous. And some of the people I knew, know one of the people who's, I, I mean, he's, he's got a kind soul. He was a musician. He got a kind soul, um, being terrible with women terrible he's treated women really badly all throughout his life um and yet he can stand on a high horse over covid in two seconds and he he's got like this 20 years of of disgusting behavior behind him now he's the most virtuous person in his circle oh look at me look at me i agree with it and that's partially why it's done it's a way to hook onto something to give oh, you a- part absolutely of that's an addiction that's an addiction and it yes. was done so on purpose the fear, the absolutely paralyzing fear, and it works on a purely physiological level, aside like many other things. But mm-hmm. it was done so on purpose and so masterfully, and they were pounding so hard that they really succeeded in many ways. And now people are coming back. Well, many people are actually coming back, some not, but 
but it like like the the, the the tricks don't last forever. I mean, like that's why they're coming up with new things. But smoke and mirrors, the smoke and mirrors. Talk about uh, in the short amount of time that we have left. Well, uh, I, I I would say I would say um, uh, I did a, um, an article. It's on my website. Got to put it properly on a, a proper page. But uh, just if you want to understand a little bit about some of the men. Um, on the British side, who actually have been trying to spark this fear of um, pandemic and who are the people behind all of the computer modeling, the creation of the computer model, the invention of the computer modeling, uh, the testing of the computer modeling for that, that has scared so many people during this pandemic. All of um, the history of pandemics is uh, one called the Welcome Five that I did, which is um, looking at the Welcome Trust and five yeah, yeah. members who are really, really influential. I think. Uh, if people read a bit of that, they'll start to understand that, oh, wait a minute, there's an agenda behind it. And look, there's all of these obvious signs that they've been trying to make this happen. And, and people have just got to, what you see on TV and what you see on the news is given to you, is given to you for a reason. And it's to change your mind so that you will think something that probably isn't true. Because if you knew the truth, you'd be really angry. And their job is to manage your anger, manage your anger. That's it. Towards somebody yeah. else. Their job is yeah. to manage your anger towards somebody else, be it yeah, yeah. a person of a different demographic or anti-vaxxer or whatever. I mean, like that's, that's the art. And it is you so can't obvious. take the anger away. You can only like put it and push it out somewhere else. That is so true. And and it, we see it all around us. But you have to, to to understand. It's you know. It's not like everything's a conspiracy. But conspiracies exist all around us. Crimes are a conspiracy. People commit crimes. They're a conspiracy to commit crimes. If you go, if you look into court, if you look at how they describe crimes in court right. conspiracy to murder conspiracy to steal conspiracy to this Pe people have conspired through the entirety of history i know and, i have this term that is called ordinary conspiracy like everything mm -hmm. even even harvard and cia events so, i mean like so it's a conspiracy but it's an ordinary conspiracy because that's what people do i mean pe yeah. that's what people do people get together they scam they figure out how to like get more yeah. for them and less for others yeah so i mean and that's it, it's really important just but we gotta all stop being so 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 silly and and uh, expecting that the government is like an adult a parent who cares about us and wants to look after us because they don't they they want to keep us under control and they will vent our steam in whichever direction they want whether you're the powers in russia the powers in america the powers everywhere they all have the same intention that's to keep their people from chopping their heads off that's it and it's happened throughout history over and over again so they probably got reason to fear it um but that's basically what what the people in power do they try and stop for they get as much as they can through their lifetime and stop from rebellion happening in in their era and push it along down the line times are about to get really freaky though um one last thing that i will say that i think is really important um a lot of what herman khan's work was was looking at the future and looking at future technologies and with the fourth industrial revolution and the technocracy happening what klaus and his boys are doing are trying to make all of herman khan's predictions come true but herman khan's predictions some of them were warnings listen if we do this 
this will completely we will it will spiral out of control we will have no ability to um to control some technologies and there's some big paradigm shift in technologies coming in the next 10 20 years and if they're as big as the atomic bomb was and the atomic bomb literally controlled and changed the world for the next 30 40 50 60 years and there's about four of those paradigm shifting technologies coming up which will really really just change everything change the entire game so if you think you're confused now you wait for the future and if we allow these people in charge to keep going they will you continue to use those things as a psychological tool against us to control us and to make us do whatever they want rather than to do what's right which I think most people just want to live their life. You know, life's pretty stressful. Kids cry, things happen, houses burn down, all sorts of stuff happens. But at the end of the day, we've got to kind of work together and they have us working against each other. And we've got to change that. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll have to do another interview because there's this giant, the most important, the world philosophical topic that I wanted to talk about that is like key. So... Uh, if you operate, we'll have to do another one. And love to, love you. to. Yeah, tell tell me when. I'm I'm really I I really like having conversations. So oh, cool. if you want to talk about anything, just tell me. Give me a time, and we'll do it. Cool. And awesome. you have the cutest babies. So I mean, like the cutest <laughs> baby. That was just so. <laughs> he, he's, just a, he's a lovely one. He charms all the ladies with his smile. That's for sure. <laughs> he's got one hell of a smile. He's just uh He just that's all he does all of the time. He's got this. Ah, I'm always smiling. Oh, like, and it's, so cute. Yeah, well, well, uh, well uh, so where do people find you? If people want to find me, best place, johnnyvedmore.com. Uh, I'm at fungimonkey.com. And of course, I'm at Unlimited Hangout. Um, where there's so much good research uh, coming out and there's so much stuff coming over the next uh, few months, some really interesting things. Uh, Fungi Monkey is very much my... fungi monkey if you want to say it is very much my media site so if you want to watch things and listen to things that's the place to go um if you want to read articles go over to johnnyvedmore.com there's just i i mean if you type me into google you're probably going to miss out a lot so come direct and you'll find links to all the different places this video will be up there and all, all many other things and I, I i just say to people thank you for taking a look thank you for reading thank you for watching think about opening up your mind to the fact that life isn't so simple as someone tells you it is on a tv screen you've got to go and research for yourself so if you don't trust something that someone like i i say and i well source the articles now to make sure but you've got to go and do your own research too learn what people are trying which people are trying to trick you and which people are telling you the truth that's it. Well, thank you, Johnny. And send my love to your half. I will do. <laughs> She's wonderful. Do. You're both wonderful. So I'll talk to you later. And we totally have to have another conversation because that's like important. Awesome. So I love cool. it. I I'll love talk it. to you later. Yeah. Bye-bye. Wicked to speak to you. Thank you, lovely. Okay. Bye-bye.